from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. The central thing to keep in mind is that microbes like to break down organic matter. It's how they make a living. Um, and so any one of these practices might succeed in building up some carbon, but the amount of time it sticks around is unclear. So many years ago, when I first got into the energy sector, I felt like the more I learned, the less I knew. It took me a really long time to start turning in the opposite direction, where the more I learned, the more I knew. I'm back at that early point when it comes to soil carbon. The more I learn, the less I feel like I really understand about it. Nonetheless, I find it fascinating. I hope you will too. This week, digging in on the science of soil carbon. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, cost, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So regular listeners will remember that a couple months ago, I had a conversation with Freya Che from Carbon Plan all about soil carbon credits and soil carbon markets. I've been interested in this topic for over a decade because soil contains both maximum promise and, in my opinion, maximum peril as a so-called nature-based solution to climate change mitigation. It's also just a really important carbon sink uh, as part of the natural carbon cycle. But I realized after having that conversation that we were maybe putting the cart before the horse, or I guess the plant before the seed. Anyway, it sort of makes no sense to talk about soil carbon markets without first talking about soil carbon itself. What exactly is soil's role in the carbon cycle? What do we and don't we know about the impacts of changing agricultural practices and other hacks to impact soil carbon sequestration? What are those hacks that might help us engineer soil to capture and store more CO2? And then once we understand what we know about all of that, then we can think about how and whether we should create a virtual commodity market to compensate growers and landowners for taking actions that benefit the planet. So here's that first conversation coming second. If you haven't listened to the episode with Freya, I highly recommend going back after this one. And if you have, then consider this one the prequel. Our guest to talk about soil carbon science is Eric Slesarev, who has collaborated on a report on soil carbon with Carbon Plan, where Freya works, and in his day job is a staff scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, where he studies, of course, soil carbon. Here's Eric. Eric, welcome to Catalyst. Well, hello. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for being here. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you about soil carbon and, and dig in. I'm going to say that once, and then I'm going to never <laughs> say it again. Um all right, so let's talk about soil carbon at the highest level. My my framework for thinking about this stuff is basically there was a, a natural soil carbon cycle predated humans or predated human agriculture. Then we've spent the past uh, 
few thousand years messing with it by doing agriculture and by doing a bunch of other things. Um, and then now we're interested in perhaps trying to mess with it again, only this time to try to maximize the amount of carbon that soil takes up and keep it in there as long as possible for the purpose of mitigating climate change. So before we talk about the things we might want to do to mess with it now, how did we mess with it when we started agriculture? The answer to that is complicated, but I, I think there are a couple main ways that agriculture has altered soil and its role in the carbon cycle. So plants are fixing carbon and, and they're adding it to the soil through a number of ways, through their, their leaves and to a large extent via their roots and also through carbon compounds that leak out of the roots or are exuded from the roots. We call them exudates. And so they're adding carbon to the soil and that carbon builds up because uh, microbes can consume it, they can eat it, but they can't keep up with the rate at which plants are adding that carbon under all circumstances for a number of reasons. And so the the sort of natural baseline condition is that there's an ecosystem on the surface, there are plants, they're fixing carbon, they're introducing it, there are microbes that are constantly breaking it down and releasing it back to the atmosphere. But those two processes ultimately come into some kind of balance that allows carbon to build up to a certain level in the soil. And you know how much builds up depends on a whole bunch of factors. But at some level... It depends on how much plant growth is happening in a given place. So when, when humans come along and start developing agriculture, uh, they're really finding another use for that plant growth at some level. And so agriculture involves harvesting biomass, um, replacing forests with cropland potentially, uh, converting ecosystems that were composed of deeply rooted plants like perennial grasses with ecosystems that are managed by humans and composed of our crop plants, which tend to be fairly short-lived and hence shallow-rooted and therefore add less carbon to the soil, particularly at depth. And so we, we're, we're managing the plant communities in agro-ecosystems when we practice agriculture and therefore controlling the amount of carbon that actually makes it into the soil, and at some level, choking it off. And so what that means is that the balance between plant inputs and the you know, constant chewing away of those microbes on the carbon shifts, and we end up with less carbon on balance in those agricultural soils. So that's, that's one half of the answer. But the other half is that agriculture often or almost always involves disturbing the soil. You know, originally by, you know, hand or plowing a field with oxen or whatever livestock uh, you've got available, and nowadays using machinery. And that disturbance, um, and also the amount of time the soil spends bare without vegetation on it, increases the rate at which soil is eroded. And we, we think humans have increased the rate of, of soil erosion massively, um, in agricultural land since the advent of agriculture. And that, that means the carbon in that soil leaves the system, although it doesn't necessarily get re-emitted to the atmosphere the way it does if microbes uh, eat it and then respire it. it. It ends up in water bodies, essentially, you know, in rivers and lakes or at the bottom of the ocean. Okay, so maybe I can try to summarize what you're saying, uh, and then we could 
dig into it further. I have already said dig into it a second time. This is going to be really <laughs> difficult for me. It's inevitable. You're, yeah, you're just going to have to get used to it. It happens to me too. It's a big problem. Okay, so you're saying first half of the answer is by by discovering agriculture and then pursuing it all over the world, we've we've basically limited or maybe reduced the total amount of carbon that is sequestered in the soil. And then second, in addition to that, we've we've we mess with the soil and in messing with the soil we uh extract the carbon though it it's maybe sometimes goes into the atmosphere sometimes doesn't goes to places like the oceans and th- that sort of last piece of like when it sometimes goes some places and other places gets to this broad thing that i always face whenever i'm having conversations about soil carbon which is it seems like there's still just an enormous amount of uncertainty that we have and a lot of uh, locational specificity. Like it's hard to make these broad brush comments about what impacts a given thing will have on, on soil carbon sequestration or release or where it will end up. Is that right? Like, where do you feel like we are in the, in our scientific understanding of soil carbon, uh, and how, how that should relate to how we think about all these practices that we'll talk about in a minute that are aimed at trying to increase, uh, soil's role as a carbon sink. Yeah, I you know, I think broadly speaking that sounds right to me. There there is still a huge amount of uncertainty and place specificity. It's not that we know nothing. Uh, we 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 know a good deal and you know soil scientists and biogeochemists and the the whole pot of people that study soil that label themselves in various different ways have been working very hard to to understand the complexity but uh, the reality is there's still a huge amount of uncertainty. Uh, for instance, that erosion question I just brought up earlier, uh, th- there's been an ongoing debate about you know, whether erosion of soil and transport of that carbon uh, amounts to a source or a sink of CO2 to the atmosphere. We don't really even feel certain about the sign of the signal there. And that debate's resolving to some extent, but you know, we know it's probably not a very big source or a very big sink. So gradually, we're working our way towards higher certainty. But it's very hard to actually predict what's going to happen in any particular location, even with you know our best sort of current models. And I would also say that our, you know, even setting aside prediction, our conceptual understanding of what goes on in soil and why carbon sticks around as long as it does in soil uh, has been evolving really rapidly over the last couple decades. And it, it, it's by no means settled. Um, so that that doesn't mean that you know, we're totally confused and you shouldn't listen to the scientists, but it also means that this is not, you know, this is not new- Newtonian mechanics, right? We can't calculate anything with high precision. We're still figuring out the basics of how things work at some level. So I want to talk about some of the things that are rising in prominence now as actions that we might be able to take to use soil as a greater carbon sink and and draw down CO2 from the atmosphere in some cases and and get your perspective on where they fit in the mix, how much certainty we have around them, where the big questions lie and so on. There's now a bunch of, you know, conversation around enhanced weathering which is sort of independent from soil carbon itself, right? We're not really trying to create new soil when we are doing enhanced weathering, right? Yeah, I mean, enhanced weathering, that's, that's a whole other can of worms um, at some level. I mean, I, I, um, is that also a soil pun? Maybe. <laughs> uh, so, 
And what I've talked about so far is um, organic carbon in soil, uh, but soil has this huge role in the inorganic half of the carbon cycle as well, um, uh, regardless of whether that inorganic carbon is stored in the soil or not. And uh, that's because the weathering reactions that happen in soil, and these are basically transformations of minerals that formed at high temperatures and pressures um, deep below the Earth's surface, which are not thermodynamically stable in soil or in, in, in ecosystems at the Earth's surface. And they, as they're transformed, um, the reactions basically consume uh, acidity and release um, divalent and monovalent cations, um, so like calcium, magnesium, sodium, potassium, um, for instance. And that reaction, on balance, ends up basically pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. And um, and that CO2 then ends up as bicarbonate in water in the soil. It could end up in a stream and then flushed out to the ocean, where it's essentially sequestered in the ocean. Or it could end up staying in the soil as a carbonate mineral, right? So that, that process is going on all the time, and it's hugely important in regulating Earth's climate at really long timescales and might be influenced by things like mountain building, for instance, like tectonic processes, right? So it's slow, though. It's a very small fraction of the the instantaneous carbon balance of the Earth at any given moment. The biological carbon half of the carbon cycle is a is a is a bigger player. The concept behind enhanced weathering is that maybe we could um, we could turn up the knob on that geologic sequestration pathway by grinding up rock and then spreading it out so that it can weather faster because it will have more surface area. It's basically like um, trying to treating the rock like an anti-acid, basically, and spreading it over the earth. Um, I think it's garnered a lot of interest recently because the, the ultimate resting place for the carbon is potentially more stable than organic carbon in soil, right? Stable and meaning longer-lasting, basically. That's the right, primary. Right, right. It's a more durable place to store carbon uh, than in organic matter, which is, you know, if it's anywhere near the Earth's surface where oxygen and water can get to it, ultimately susceptible to, to decomposing, right? So, um so, so that's that's why people are intrigued by enhanced weathering geoengineering. The the catch is that um, we still don't have many field studies, and so it hasn't really been proven, even at a local level, let alone at scale. And it's it's probably pretty hard to quantify how much CO two is actually being removed via that pathway. Um, there are many people working on devising approaches for that, but I would say it's definitely an emerging technology. Um, and it's not yet at a point where it's been fully proven, um, but I do understand the excitement around it. Right. Okay, let's bring it back to organic world um, and talk about some of the sort of farming-related practices, the, the sort of people talk about regenerative agriculture as this broad category, but then more specifically within that, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of agricultural practices that are purported to potentially either sequester more carbon in the soil or keep the carbon in the soil longer. I'll maybe bucket a few of them together and then just get your take on what we what the state of the science is on and what we know about how effective these might be. Um, but there are things like cover cropping and agroforestry, no-till farming. H- how should we be thinking about all those things as of today? Oh, where to start here? Um I mean, there are a whole range of agricultural practices that 
were originally developed uh, for perfectly good agronomic reasons that aren't actually related to sequestering atmospheric CO2. Uh, and that would include cover cropping, um, which is partly about erosion management and nitrogen management in, in agricultural soils and maintaining soil fertility um, because organic matter is good for soil fertility. Or um, no-till, for instance, which was developed as an erosion control measure, right? Or for that matter, agroforestry, which, which also has benefits in terms of soil health and, and you know, erosion control, et cetera, right? So, so these practices were, were explored um, or um, promoted uh, because they have real benefits in, in the right context for agriculture. And then what's happened over the last couple decades is that the, the, there's been increased interest in using these practices to um, also to fight climate change. There are difficulties, though. All of these um, agricultural practices, they yield increases in the amount of organic carbon in soil. And organic carbon is not necessarily a long-lived sink for atmospheric CO2. And at some level, I think that's the central thing to keep in mind is that microbes like to break down organic matter. It's how they make a living. Um, and so any one of these practices might succeed in building up some carbon, but the amount of time it sticks around is unclear um, in that it will, it will depend on future land use and future climate. Um, and so we really importantly need to think of conservation agriculture as giving us you know, maybe a, a temporary place to keep some carbon out of the atmosphere, but ultimately it shouldn't be treated as equivalent to a, a more durable or permanent carbon removal strategy. So that, that's probably the most critical thing to keep in mind. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com events or click the link in the show notes. Uh, one of the things that I think is maybe important to distinguish, I, I feel like with any of these practices, especially if you're trying to then uh, gain some kind of credit or economic value for the carbon that you sequester in the soil as a result of them, the, there's two different types of uncertainty. Maybe there are more, but uh, at least two that I think of. One is the durability, which as you said, is at, at least in part, if not in large part, a function of future practices on the land, which you, you know, there's sort of legal mechanisms to contract around potentially, but there's un there's inherent uncertainty there because you just don't know what's going to happen in the future. But then there's the other uncertainty, which is how much additional carbon did you sequester in the first place? It's a volume question more than it is a durability question. And, and I wonder how you think about the degree of certainty that we can have 
generally today that if I say, okay, here's a plot of land, here's what I've been doing on this specific plot of land, and here's what I'm growing and where it is geographically and everything, now I'm going to change one practice. I'm going to stop tilling or you know pick your pick your practice. How much certainty can we have around the amount of carbon that is additional carbon that is sequestered? And what is your take on the sort of world of measurement around that, which is also has its own whole suite of different solutions? Yeah, I you know at some level the elephant in the room is is the additionality question. Uh, you know we, we the we meaning the scientists people like me love to talk about measurement and issues with measurement and how to measure best, etc. But uh, but I think that all pales in comparison to the 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 more difficult question of what would have happened on that piece of land otherwise, right? Because if somebody was going to be practicing no-till agriculture, regardless of whether you paid them for it, then it's you know that, that it doesn't count as as a, a you know carbon removal or something that could be traded as an offset or anything like that, right? And this issue plagues the forestry sector as well. It's just as bad in the soil world. Um, and I, I, I personally, I think that challenge swamps the measurement issues. But there are also challenges related to measurement. It's, it's. I mean, we know how to measure soil carbon and how to estimate it. Um, but it, 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 you know, if you want to know the answer in one particular field, it requires taking a lot of samples. At some level, you can get around that by scaling up projects um, because. Basically, if you want to get the right answer on average over a large area, you can get away with um, with sort of achieving that with fewer samples. So there are sort of economies of scale when it comes to the measurement side of things. Um, but the measurement practices um, are not really nailed down yet, um, at least not in the the protocols that I've looked at, you know, if if you know if you want to actually get down to the brass tacks, um, you know, I've, one thing that I've griped about before um, is is uh, sampling depth, and I've got a piece with Carbon Plan on on sampling depth um, with relation to soil carbon, and you know that specifically in in the case of um, of no till agriculture, I think is really important. Um, so you know the. There's been kind of a, a controversy around that, um, and depending on who you talk to, maybe it's a tempest in a teapot, or maybe it's a big deal. Um, but you know, basically, a shifting tillage regime uh, it means that not only are you changing the biology of the system and the rate at which carbon flows through it, but also changing the vertical distribution of carbon because tilling soil mixes carbon, and it also influences rooting depth. And what that means is that in, at least in certain environments, um, particularly in places like the upper Midwest, for instance, um, changing from a full-till regime to a no-till regime, which is supposed to sequester carbon, um, can actually mean that you lose carbon deeper in the soil. Um, and, and what that means for measurement is that you have to sample deeply enough that you can count up the gains you get at the surface and the losses you get below so that you can, you know, get a full accounting of the net effect, right? Um, and you know, it's still not clear exactly how deep we should be going. Um, although it's probably deeper than thirty centimeters, which is the kind of minimum that people require. So, you know, so so there, maybe that answer is quite about uncertainty. But I don't think that the um, the current approaches to 
monitoring are totally nailed down, although I think we can solve those problems because they're technical problems, and the additionality issue is the bigger one. All right, so putting on your uh, excited scientist hat, maybe that's the only hat you wear, but... Um, oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious where you think the coolest new science is taking place in and around soil carbon. You know, we talked a little bit about some of the more novel stuff like enhanced weathering. We haven't talked about, and we, we talked about some of the more sort of like practice, agricultural practice-driven stuff. We haven't talked about some other areas where folks are doing work, things like biochar application to soils and... Um, some more like novel inorganic carbon maximization stuff, but like what, what gets you excited? What do you think is really cool that you're seeing science built around? Yeah. I mean, I, I think what I'm most excited about, um, isn't a particular practice or strategy or technology. It's more of a way of thinking about how soil carbon works, um, that could kind of bleed into all of these applications. Um, and, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, to back up a bit, um, the the way we've thought about soil carbon has changed a lot. Um, soil organic carbon has changed a lot over the past several decades. Um, you know, it 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 used to be the case that the sort of dominant theory was that um, soil organic carbon persisted in soil because it had intrinsically resistant chemical properties that made it hard for microbes to digest. And that idea has fallen out of favor um, because it's not really supported by the evidence because we find we find compounds that are potentially really easily digestible by microbes that have been in the soil for a long time. So then the question is, why do they stick around as long as they stick around? And if we could answer that question, it would help with forecasting future climate, because soil is huge, just you know, in a totally unmanaged sense, knowing how climate's going to influence soil and, and vice versa is hugely important. But it would also be really helpful for evaluating the durability of any scheme that increases organic carbon sequestered in soil, right? So, so you know, getting a sense of what controls the persistence of organic carbon is this essential question, right? So what gets me excited um, is that I, people are increasingly thinking about that quality of persistence um, in a more interdisciplinary way that links with the geosciences, and that's what I'm really excited about. Um, and and you know, rather than thinking about um, organic matter and soil as being controlled entirely by biological processes. We're learning that um, minerals in soil play this huge role in controlling the persistence of that organic carbon because they can encapsulate it or provide surfaces that the carbon sticks to um, or release metal ions that sort of co-precipitate with the carbon and make it harder for microbes to get at um, uh, 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 you know, because they've basically created these, these organometal precipitates. And, and all of that um, interactivity is really fascinating uh, because it actually it links the, the processes of soil formation um, and weathering to the biology in this really fascinating interdisciplinary way. So that, you know, I, I, there are people, you know, at, you know, universities and you know, research institutions all over the world that are studying very various aspects of that sort of biogeo interaction, um, and the role of minerals and um, and the inorganic part of soil in 
regulating carbon cycling and vice versa, the role of biology in accelerating those reactions. All right. So I guess final question. Um, a lot of all of this thinking and accounting around soil carbon relies upon modeling, ultimately, because we're not measuring everything all the time and certainly can't measure the future. So what type of modeling are we doing? How sophisticated is it? Is it well set or is it problematic? Well, like, give me a sense of the world of soil carbon modeling. Yeah, I mean, it's a... Um... It's it's kind of a thorny topic at some level. Um, um, the The history here is that people first started modeling soil carbon in a really quantitative way in the mid twentieth century, and um, and so this was in an era when people still thought of soil carbon as um, largely being just dead plant material that um, was hard to decompose. I'm simplifying a bit when I say that, but that was sort of the dominant paradigm at the time, right? And the way they represented that um, is that they basically, they did it in a very conceptual way, which is that they scientists had figured out that some soil carbon um, is very bioavailable and it cycles quickly, and some of it is less bioavailable, um, and so maybe it's more recalcitrant uh, is the word that was used for it, um, and because of its chemical properties, or perhaps for other reasons, um, and so it cycles more slowly. And so they, they, they conceptually they divided the amount of carbon in the soil into these pools, and they assigned different decay rates to them, and, and basically represented the the return of carbon to the atmosphere from soil organic carbon pools, um, the way you might model radioactive decay as a first-order exponential process. Uh, so uh, basically, the amount leaving any given carbon pool is a function of some intrinsic turnover rate that's modified by environmental conditions like temperature or moisture. Um, and that's that's a, a pretty hand-wavy way of representing the system, but it it sort of worked at capturing, you know, in a broad-brush way, um, some of the dynamics and the spatial patterns, right? And so those those models um, really got developed in the you know starting in the seventies through the eighties and into the nineties, and and kind of coalesced around what we call um, um, first order soil carbon models. Um, and so like Descent is an example of a model like that, or DNDC, right? And those became the core of the way soil carbon is represented in Earth system models that are used to forecast climate and are really the workhorse um, still today um, and are importantly uh, central in, um, in, in sort of soil carbon um, uh, valuation schemes. Um, and so they're... they're you know they remain really important from an applied standpoint, but the the tricky thing is that our understanding has evolved tremendously since the since the nineteen eighties and nineties, um, and there's been this big paradigm shift in you know on the the more empirical side um, to um, really emphasize the role of microbes as actors in the system. Um, they generate the enzymes that break down the organic matter. They're ultimately the the sort of linchpin that connects the organic matter to the atmosphere because they're the ones that are breaking it down and releasing it as CO2. Um, and also the role of minerals in um, interacting with organic matter and stabilizing it. And and when you start to 
represent a system like that, you end up with models that have very different behaviors than the first order models. Um, and they, they, have, they come up with very different predictions. For instance, a, a first order model would predict that if you add more carbon to the soil, the amount of carbon stored in the soil will increase in a way that's basically linear at steady state. Um, but a, a model that has microbes in it will not make that prediction. Um, and, um, and so our understanding has sort of outstripped the models. And so the models that are being used to make projections about carbon sequestration in soil or to come up with estimates for baselines um, for those calculations are essentially outdated, uh, which is not to say that they're wildly inaccurate, but they don't reflect our current understanding of how soil actually works. Um, and maybe they didn't even really do that in the 80s and 90s and people knew it and they were just looking for a solution to the problem. But we we still haven't reached a satisfactory place where the math represents our thinking. Um, and so it's it's going to be an interesting process seeing how the, the newer models that incorporate that complexity evolve and whether they get enough traction that they can push out the old-fashioned ones. Right. Well, as usual, in any conversation that I've had around soil carbon, I feel like I both know more and know less than when we first started chatting. But I'll, it'll, I've done it, my job then. That's yeah. right. On balance, it's more, though. So uh, thanks, Eric. Really appreciate the, the time here. Yeah, of course. Eric Slesarev is a staff scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, where he studies soil carbon. Well, what did you think? We got a bunch of comments on the previous episode on soil carbon markets. Folks have strong opinions on it. As you can imagine, I'm sure that is true of the science as well. So we welcome your feedback. You can find us on Twitter at, at CatalystPod. You can also find me there. If you like the show, as always, go over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. This show is a co-production of PostScript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to more info on today's topics. And as always, PostScript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and agriculture, and definitely soil carbon stuff, transportation and logistics, advanced materials manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf and Dalvin Abouaji, mixing by Greg Vilfrank and Sean Marquand, theme song by Sean Marquand. Our managing producer is Cecily Meza-Martinez. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst. Catalyst.